Music in the Cafe at Night and Revolution in the Air. Dig at harryshill.net and Facebook Harry Brown's Farm. Every Saturday afternoon at 5, it's time for the Wicked Good Music Hour here on WERU Community Radio. Tune in and enjoy an hour of music from right here in Maine. You'll hear just about any genre you can think of and every type of presentation, from live studio performances by local musicians to recorded music by national names with Maine connections. And it will all be wicked good. If you have a CD that you'd like us to play or you'd like to be on the show, just email info at WERU.org and we'll get back to you. That's the Wicked Good Music Hour, Saturdays at 5, right here on WERU, a voice of many voices. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Imagine living in a community where you know your neighbors, where your environmental footprint is responsibly small, where you get to garden and your kids play safely, and where it's affordable to create and maintain your own home. And this morning, we're going to kind of get a, a, a real-life response to that dream by talking with folks in the studio with us who are with the Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village and welcoming back to the program, Talk of the Towns, Sana McKim. Welcome, Sana. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And how do you describe yourself as part of this, this village? You're kind of a leader. You have an uh, official title? Well, there were seven of us who used to sit around on Sunday afternoons and, and uh, with our kids trying to figure out how to make life sort of more sane. Um, and so I'm just a co-founder and a member like the, the other 55 of us. <laughs> Great. We also have uh, Nessa Dirtnik, um, who is a resident or a future resident. I'm glad to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Joe Ippolito. Is that good? good? Pretty good. John Apolito, yes. Great. Um, John Apolito, I'm sorry. And um, you're um, also expecting to be a resident really, really soon, or you're kind of halfway there? Yeah, well, our feet are on the ground, and we look out the window and see bulldozers. But, yes, we're, uh, we're in – we've got, you know, veggies growing and uh, rabbits on the yard, so we're, we're as close as we can be to being there without completely being there. Great. Great. Well, Sana, uh, tell us about this journey um, from sitting around your, your kitchen table to where you are now. What's, it, what's, what's that journey been? Give us some high points. Right. Okay. So in, in February of 2007, we saw a piece of land that um, we thought, wow, that could be co-housing. And, and a number of us had been talking about co-housing for 20 years before that. Um, and it usually didn't come together until there was a piece of land. So in this case, we started with a piece of land that was on the market. And we sat around for about six months trying to figure out how to get it under contract and then another four, five, six months to figure out what our membership structure might be. And then we opened up membership saying, this is the mission, this is the land. So we just, I think, saved a couple of years right there. Does anybody want to do this? And that's, that was sort of the kickoff in 2008. And um, so we've been kind of growing steadily, steadily ever since. And uh, and we closed on the land in the summer of 2008. And um, we've, at this point, we have, I think, 32 houses out of 36 uh, spoken for with purchase and sale agreements. And so we're in the midst of construction right now. 
and we hope to be done at the end of 2013. Wow, wow, yeah. that's very exciting. Yeah. And um, so let's remind us what co-housing is. What, what it, what's that concept? Yeah, it's basically um, uh, an old-fashioned neighborhood built in a new way. And so it's usually resident. Um, the residents have a lot to do with deciding what is it that we're going to be, how are we going to get there. In our case, we ended up having to be self-developed because we started right at the time that the financial crisis and housing market crashed. Um, and so we, uh, we are... Um, we've come up with all of our own sort of condominium documents, rules and regulations. We're structured as a condominium association. Um, but the commun- it's really an intentional community. And in our case, that community is focused on environmental sustainability, um, a lifestyle that can be affordable over the long run. Um, and farming and food production. Mm. And so that's where the, the eco-village comes in, that, that very intentional environmental focus. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Nessa and John, each of you um, must have been part of this process of, of thinking, discussing, and then deciding <laughs> um, along the way. Nessa, tell us about that journey for you. How did you first learn about eco, the eco-village? You know, we had a really interesting experience because um, my husband is Austrian and we spent about six years, six or seven years living over there. And um, w- my husband's family is extremely tight-knit and it was a really wonderful community, but it just wasn't really the right place for us. We didn't quite fit in in, in several ways. And so we read about co-housing actually in a, in a magazine in 2008, I believe, and did a web search and Belfast co-housing popped up because of the combination of farming and community. And so we visited in that summer, um, but that it wasn't quite time. And we visited again in 09 and it still wasn't quite time. And then we finally... Wasn't time, time for you. Wasn't time for us to leave Austria, as it turned out. Um, it, it was really hard to leave the community that we had, but eventually then um, in the summer of 2011 we made the move and haven't looked back it's been it's been wonderful um the people i mean moving with two kids to a different continent they were born and raised there for the first six years of their lives and that was really difficult but it actually was made much easier because of co-housing um we weren't totally sure when we moved to belfast that we would join belfast itself was felt like the right place for us. Um, But as we got to know the people better um, and spent more time with them, it just, it was, it just clicked with us. It Mm -hmm. felt totally right. And yeah, we're moving in in three weeks and it's, we're so excited. So describe, describe the house. If you, if we were to walk up to the the front door, what would we be seeing in your house? Um, Well, it's right in the middle of a construction zone at the moment. So it's right. In three weeks, I'm hoping that that's kind of moved moved to the side. But um, yeah, so there's cedar shingles on the outside. It's they, there's a really beautiful style to it, um, and um, you know we still have we have some paintings to do still, and got to get the kitchen installed and everything, um, all those details. But right across the path from us um, is our neighbor Jeffrey, and he's actually he's watching my kids right now. He's a He's in his 60s, and his grandchildren don't live nearby, so it's wonderful. I have my kids that he's helping take care of them so I can be here today. And um, another neighbor has two kids, same age as our kids, so we're really looking forward to just have, being able to look out our window and see, oh, they're the, they're the other kids playing. Okay, you guys go outside. They can go outside and play. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all going to be just wonderful. That I think it's going to be a great help to us as parents because we can... Um, there's there's people of so many different ages that can that maybe aren't right in the midst of their parenting so they have energy for kids when we're like oh my gosh we just need a break you know um and at the same time there are kids just literally across a path they don't have to cross a street they don't it's just right across a footpath and um i think spontaneous gatherings are going to be much easier where where, when we move into co-housing John, what's your what's your journey been like to kind of um, make the the process of learning about and then getting closer and then deciding and then getting ready to to, to kind of inhabit? Well, like Nessa, I'm a bit of a transplant. Um, although my partner and fellow uh, co-housing member Jolene Blay grew up in Maine, so we were living a fast-paced life in New York. Sort of read the tea leaves, uh, particularly Jolene looking at issues like climate change, peak oil, economic collapse, saying, "Wow, this isn't sustainable." So her homing device went off, and she ended up back in Maine, and I followed her 
Uh, and uh, she started something called Long Greenhouse, which is a, a, a much smaller uh, kind of community project based in Orono, where uh, we had uh, a family of native Wabanaki elders living with us, Kisitanamuk and Mi'kma'han. We had university students from the nearby campus of the University of Maine coming to do permaculture uh, work in the workshops in the yards. We had a homeschool community operating out of our basement. It was great. It was insane. Uh, the um, you know my children still uh, a lot of their character and their appreciation of multi generational learning comes from that but it was just not sustainable with you know getting three or four nuclear families together to try to make something different mm. so when uh, she saw the uh, news about this eco village propping up in Belfast and wow they're going to have thirty six homes imagine multiplying the number of social connections and and uh, possibilities for learning and and having our kids interact with so many more people, uh, it, it seemed like a dream come true. And it, it took us a while. We came and rented in Belfast, loved the place, but because the homes weren't built yet, we had to kind of return. And um, like I said, we're, we're as moved in as, as possible given the construction site. Uh, but we've already been able to take advantage of the the people on the ground there, and our vision for what the future will bring is even bigger. Mm-hmm. Son, is that are their stories somewhat typical or um, part of a of a, a um, kind of a pattern? Yeah, no, I think they are um, in that. Um, I mean, I, I my own story. I live four miles from Belfast, so I already feel like Belfast is my home. Um, but I'm down a dirt road. Everything requires the car. Everything requires a, a, my calendar to figure out if I can fit in this or that cup of coffee with someone or the soccer game with my son. Or um, So I think the, the idea that people are seeking m- more proximity to people who want to do more together. Um, and But I think of the 32 households that we have right now, they all have a slightly different version of what they want to do. Some people can't wait to be quilting in the common house next to the fire. Other people can't wait to be canning food together. Other people want to learn how to can food. Um, You know, we've got our youngest member is five months old and our oldest member is, I think, 77. Um, And so this, the idea that they're in an intergenerational neighborhood where it's just easy, that proximity and the design of the community, which is pedestrian friendly, um, is is specifically designed so that you bump into each other just on the way to get the mail. And so community happens out your front door, and you still have your private space in your home and out the back door. So you said at the beginning an old neighborhood concept, but um, with some new um, forms added in. Yeah, and, and really we just have gotten away from the like the tight-knit village um, in, in all of us having our own you know, acreage or own, you know, big yards. Uh, I know there's a condominium association right near us where the houses are far enough apart that on a day like today, you have to really, really think twice about whether you're really going to, you know, tramp across to the to the neighbors in the far end of that community. So this is a super tightly clustered, like the most dense clustering in Belfast proper, but on 42 acres so that we have, you know, something like 30 yeah, 35 acres or so that's open space now for us to do all kinds of other activities on. Mm. So t- talk a little bit about the land, where it's located, and what are some of the other attributes or qualities of that land? And why did you choose this particular place for the, the concentrated housing? Right. So part of the original um, idea was to look at what is going to be more environmentally sustainable over time and peak oil and that kind of thing. And so this land is two miles from the ocean front in Belfast, um, downtown Belfast, so that it could be walked or biked um, or you could ride your horse or whatever it is. You can do something without needing your car. Um, and that was, that was a critical piece. We could have gotten land a lot less expensive, 20 miles or 10 miles inland. But we really want to be within um, walking distance of jobs, schools, services, that kind of thing. Um, and it's part of an old farm that is um, uh, currently mostly all hayed right now. And so there's a, a hope to be able to protect and preserve that land in addition. Um, but the co-housing community decided to buy a smaller piece to make those houses more affordable. Uh, and they did choose a kind of house that's um, super energy efficient, something called a passive house model, a passive house standard, which we could talk about. But um, basically... Um, the land we wanted to preserve uh, the land to be able to farm to be able to grow more food we designed this common house which is sort of like a clubhouse or a, a, an extension of your living room something that in a co-housing community is used 
every day, all day, um, by lots of different people, because you do have some 60, 65 people in the neighborhood who who sort of use that space. But we designed a, a root cellar and a freezer room in the basement so that we would have lots of ability to preserve and do our own food. And mm. that said, not everybody's interested in all these pieces, you know, but it means that four or five families who want to do something can get together and do something. So um, I'll get your kind of framework, and then I'll ask uh, Nessa and John to comment. But um, who who designs the house? Um, um, if if someone else designs it, uh, what's the what's the range of possibility? What, yeah. What's the house construction and that process like? Right. So we there are 120 of these co-housing communities around the country. So we we've sort of lucked out in that we can learn from a lot of the things that they wish they had done differently, or the things they were really glad that they did. So we decided early on <clears throat> to have all the houses be that we would be building a custom community and not custom houses. And so the whole group was involved in, we started with the most common. We started with our site and we brought Chuck Durrett who wrote the co-housing book, bringing that concept from Denmark here to the States. So he came and helped us look at how, no, we didn't really want two acres around every house. That wouldn't work very well for co-housing. Or if you did, you could do that somewhere else. But if you really want to do co-housing, squish yourselves together. And, um, uh, so we, we agreed as a group on how we want to lay out the houses. Then we agreed as a group what we wanted this common house to do for us. Uh, and in both cases, we had architects then helping um, turn that into actual drawings and designs. And then we went to the personal. After we'd done the big community stuff and we knew what was in the common house, then we could design what did we want in our houses, knowing that we had guest rooms and a kid's room and a library and a root cellar and all these other things in the common house. Then our houses could be smaller. Um, and therefore heat more efficiently and that kind of thing. So we did the same thing. We worked with a, a local um, builder and architect who actually, part of the way this project got started is they were in that original group trying to figure out how do we how do we do this. We've since lost our architect. But <laughs> he's with us, but just not buying a house. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so they are d- building these houses, and we decided to build the same construction method that they've been um, p- playing with. They built the the 12th house in the country that was uh, it got um, certification as a passive house certifi- certified house. We decided not to spend the money on the, the certification process and all that as a group, but we still have houses that perform almost 90% better than average new construction. So, so, we'll have so each of the houses is um, of a certain standard. Um, is it then Nessa and John's responsibility to to build the house, or do you build the house? What's the relationship there? Right. The, so the community, when you become, when you say yes, I absolutely want to do this, which Nessa did in 2011. Yes, I want to do it. She then became an equity member in a development company. So we currently, this is a whole conversation in itself. We currently have a 10 million dollar business run by 55 people who don't have any development experience, myself included. (laughs) So we've hired a lot of help from the outside. We've gotten a lot of advice. We've followed the best practices of co-housing neighborhoods around the country. Um, And so, uh, so, and then, so this development company has then hired um, all these people. Um, So we, so Nessa doesn't build her own house. The the company, um, Geologic, that is building, design build firm that's doing this are, are doing that. She's, you could talk more about what you're doing. I mean, there's there's a series of options and upgrades that any household can can choose, and so they've so we're all tailoring our own homes to sort of what we want, mostly after we buy them. Okay. So Nessa, tell tell us about the process of of, of you've made the decision. You're beginning to you you visited the site. Um, you you know the general model. What did you and your partner add to how the house looked and how it felt inside? So yeah, we had a lot of conversations with Alan, who's the the principal builder for Geologic, um, to come up. He gave us all the, the different options. You know, you can there's kind of the base options, and then you could, if you want, you could go with a granite countertop instead of formica, or you could do wood floors instead of the um, pine, um, for example. Um, we decided to get actually our house quite um, raw. Actually, we we had thought for years that we would build our own house, and it was a little bit difficult for us to to come around to the idea of of a more standardized house. And so we said, well, you know what? Don't put in that bathroom. We're going to do that bathroom ourselves. So, um, and don't put in this part of the kitchen. We're going to do that ourselves. So there are some options with that, um, but there are quite a few different upgrades that are choices that you can also make if you don't have the energy or the ability to to do your own sorts of 
changes the way we're doing, a lot of other people chose, well, we're going to get our cement stained instead of having the gray concrete floors. They're going to do like a corner kind of nice orangey brown or um, different colors of paint. So ours is... um, yeah, ours is going to probably look a little different than some of the others just because we are, I guess a couple of the people in the community will be doing more customizations after they buy the house. And um, what and what um, uh, difference do you suppose it made to have the common house? W- what decisions did you make about the interior of your house that then had a relationship to, oh, we've got this common house that we can also use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we... we won't be getting a dryer, for example, even though we have two kids and we're, my husband builds houses he you know he we we have a lot of laundry but we know that in hopefully in eight or nine months there's going to be a common house with a laundry room so we've made the choice okay we're going to skip that appliance because we know that soon enough there's going to be one in the common house that we can use and in the meantime we're going to use drying racks or you know hang up our clothes in the summer um that's one very specific choice that we've made um the house is you know, a lot of people have been able to choose smaller homes because of knowing the common house is there. They don't need all of the amenities in their own home. They know that they're close enough that if they feel if they feel like they they would like to have guests, for example, a lot of people don't have guest rooms because they wanted a smaller house. But in the and you don't need your guest room very often. So in the common house, there'll be two guest rooms. Um, so that has allowed a, a lot of the members of our community to go ahead and feel much more comfortable getting a smaller footprint of their own house. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are a couple of great. Things. I'm going to come back to John in just a minute. I'll just re- remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about co-housing, alive and well in Maine. And in the studio with us, we have uh, folks we just heard from uh, Nessa Dernick, um, who is a um, about to be a resident of the co-housing eco-village in Belfast. Uh, John Polito. Um, I'm I'm practicing, John. I'm getting that name right. (laughs) And um, he is kind of halfway in. And then uh, one of the people who kind of came up with the idea and and talked about it long enough so it became reality, and that's Sana McKim, um, who's also a resident um, of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco-Village. A little bit later in the program, we'll um, open up the phone lines for your calls as well. But, John, um, you, um, again, had a decision to make about um, what um, some of the amenities in the the building that you're going to inhabit and what was the relationship between the common house and and what you are actually going to end up with. Mm Uh, well, uh, I, I must say that so many of the decisions were made by uh, the community that uh, we didn't feel like we were just given a, a package deal. It was something that was part of something we had all thought about, sketched out. And working with Geologic is wonderful. They've got great design uh, skills and aesthetics. So um, we were able to make it look the way we wanted. But two of the things that we did that uh, were important to us was one, investing in solar capacity. So we've got solar panels, both photovoltaic for the electricity and solar hot water on the roof. Uh, my teenage son was a little skeptical until he took his first hot water and scalded himself. And he was like, wow, this shower is like amazing. I never knew the sun was so strong. And then the other thing that we invested in was a big wraparound porch, which is an option. Uh, and um, although Sana described the houses as were scrunched together, I don't really see it that way. Uh, and I know that you, Sana, were involved in an exercise in which um, there were two lines of community members uh, facing each other, and they basically backed up uh, one step at a time until they felt, okay, this is the right distance for houses to be from each other so that I both have a sense of privacy, but I can also tell, gee, you know, that person looks like they really could use a visit or, you know. Um, and, and a lot of that happens on the porches, obviously, a little more in the summer than in the winter. Mm. That notion of a neighborhood, certainly in urban um, environments, porches, front stoops were the place where people congregated so they could be in conversation with their neighbors. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think uh, maybe, you know, to bring up later, but uh, the idea that you mentioned, this sort of vision that you mentioned at the beginning beginning of the show today um, of this, you know, neighborhood where people knew each other and you didn't have to worry about kids wandering around so forth. I mean, backtrack a couple generations and that was standard in a place like the United mm. States or Europe. Mm. Um, it is still standard in many indigenous parts of the world. So in, in some ways it looks like, well, we're, we're, we're just kind of like reeling back the clock. But I think um, for my partner and my family and I, um, we're really thinking about co-housing and eco-village as a way to um, broaden that sense of the village 
so yes, we are using a lot of old techniques. We've got piles of straw and you know, rabbits and and and, and many um, you know bicycles and so forth uh, at our household. But we also are thinking about wow, we have to negotiate with all of these other you know fifty five people who are part of this community to make tons and tons of decisions. So we're using the internet a lot to do that. We've got dynamic models of of um, decision making. Um, based on consensus models. We've got outreach to the community that's starting to happen. And if we're all going to get to a world where, you know, we we survive a lot of the challenges coming in the next century, we can't just sort of sit in our enclave and be happy with our homes. We have to start thinking about how we broaden those models and let other people know about them. Mm -hmm. So I think of our social fabric as as extending the idea of the old neighborhood, but into a global perspective. Mm -hmm. That notion of community decision-making, certainly New England um, practiced that for many, many hundreds of years, two or three hundred years, and and, and yet we see a polarized country um, not having those skills. So it sounds like um, your new decision-making kind of aids and so on, and that intentionality really um, gets people to practice, use their decision-making muscles. Yes, I think so. I mean, we've worked really hard, uh, Sana and Nessa and folks uh, who have worked much harder than me on figuring out exactly how those protocols would work. And we're still shaping them and testing them. Mm-hmm. But we have the advantage of of being able to look sort of, you know, uh, f- forward to things like the Internet, where there's places like Wikipedia, where shared decision making operates among, you know, millions of people essentially and still functions mm-hmm. better than our, you know, kind of government seems to right now. And we also have the advantage of being able to look back. Um, yes, there's the, the Granges and the, the models from New England, but we can also look back at the native uh, models of decision-making, making which were extremely inclusive and yet also, uh, you know, are something that uh, we, we tend to forget about when we think about our what we're doing here in the northeast of the United States. Mm, especially with, with the temperatures outside and saying, how are we going to heat our homes in the future? You've, you've kind of made that choice. And it sounds like all of you are using your values you know, your, your deepest beliefs to dictate, well, what decisions are we going to make about where we live and how we live? Yeah, Sana? yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I wanted to just say a, a little bit about this idea of, of making decisions together. And, and um, some people call co-housing uh, a practice in world peace on a neighborhood scale. Um, I, I had read somewhere, and I can't remember who wrote this, but this idea of emotional hygiene, you know, we brush mm. our teeth twice a day, uh, we take a shower, we do all those things, but how often do we check in like, ooh, I saw, you know, I gave Nessa this look at this meeting the other day. I, I think she reacted the way I didn't mean her to. Am I going to go and just say, before anything gets big, hey, Nessa, I didn't really mean this. I meant that. Like, do So I think this is this is like the, the groundwork, the you know, really the groundwork of, of a functioning community is being able to pay attention to sort of our emotional hygiene. Are we are we letting things build up or are we really paying attention to the little stuff so that so that we can function more smoothly, which we don't have to do if we live far apart and we have fences and mm. fences make good neighbors. In mm. this case, we might not have fences, so what's mm. going to make the good neighbor? Right. Let me ask the, the very practical question. If you were um, thinking about costs of entering into this community, how would they compare to um, cost of someone saying, oh, I see a piece of land over there, I'm going to buy that land in Belfast, so that comparable. Yeah. What's, what, what, is there a cost difference, or is it about the same? What's the cost? Yeah, well, we've had a number of people who have gotten more mortgages and so our houses have been appraised at basically what it's cost us to build them um the we are sharing a number of things so we're sharing wells we're sharing um septic systems we're sharing land um and we're sharing the maintenance of all that stuff and that allowed us to put more money into basically the shell of our house and the ability for it to be um sort of high high functioning and high performing um but our prices of our houses um range from 150 from a one-bedroom to 333 for a, a three-bedroom that's expandable. So is that certainly within, you know, what other people are doing? Um, terms yeah, of for new construction right. building, yeah. Right. I think, I mean, I think if you were going to go buy a lot, you'd have to pay probably forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in Belfast right now alone. Yep. Um, so it's, you know, it's it feels like a kind of high um, sticker price on some level, um, but then when we sit and look at all the savings, um, the fact that we can't possibly have 36 lawnmowers or 36 right. canoes or whatever we currently have as we go to move in, maybe we pulled out just the best lawnmowers <laughs> that somebody really wants to keep running, um, you know, and, and all the kinds of things that we can share 
um, whether it's services, childcare, you know. So you've got the, the um, kind of entry costs. Right. Um, and what, what about, what do you imagine the annual um, maintenance costs and, and, and energy costs, how would they compare? Are they, they, those would be designed to be less, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so if I have a house right now that I heat for two or $3,000 a year, my heating bill now will be two or 300 hmm. So there's a savings right there. Um, that's kind of the big one. But then there's all the unknown things like if, like childcare. If I want to go out with my husband right now, I have to pay probably $40 just to get out of the house with my husband. But if Ness and I live next door and we say, hey, you know, the kids are basically home. If we, you know, can we share? If we Friday night, I'll take your kids, you take mm-hmm. mine or whatever. Um, so there's all kinds of savings in, in addition to that. Before we um, go to our uh, uh, friends over at the Island Housing Trust on Mount Desert Island, um, we had David from Brennan uh, calling. He wants to know about the septic plan. How are you dealing with wastewater? That's a very practical question for somebody. Uh, Sana or anybody who want to take that, that question, how do you deal with that? Well, there's a, this is, again, one of these things where we all, all these uh, trade-offs and different perspectives that come in from the community. I know that in, in our case, we were really interested in gray water reclamation and using that specifically on the garden out front. The houses are designed so that they really have, like, lots of insulation. That's why you get those big energy savings and why you can live without fossil fuel deliveries. The downside of that is that you've got a lot of kind of, you know, uh, concrete or, or cellulose or whatever to get through to get water out the door. So um, the, the septics right now are to code as far as the city required us to do, but some of us are looking into other options for you know rainwater reclamation from the roof and roof. And we've got barrels sitting out there for where the water comes off. Um, we're planning to drill a hole through the slab, despite the you know kind of technical requirements to get the water out from the kitchen into the gardens. And I think it's something that um, you know has been a challenge that uh, we continue to to look at how can how can we raise the bar even above the passive house standard and make ourselves more ecological so you're two miles from downtown does that mean you're on town sewer no we have we have two um, shared septic systems and then one engineered septic system and we did have we spent about a year talking about this um, and we had some consultants come in who do um, gray water systems in south america and and at the end of all of these conversations, we said, so should we do this? Should we build a, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, like a, um, a living, you know, um, pond that will deal with our septic stuff, as they do in Denmark, where it's much warmer. They have um, lots of different ways of dealing with it. Well, here we, he said, oh, no, no, you have all this land, you have all this soil, it filters it out. And so this was the most sort of alternative person we could think of who would come and say, you know, no, we should be doing it this other way. We were dealing, one of the things we want to do is be a model, not in terms of necessarily inspiring, but being able to push that conversation a step further. And so the DEP required this of us, basically. Um, And one of the things we want to be able to do is have anybody who wants to create some kind of neighborhood like this, and, and that's why we chose to be a condominium association to do some of these um, basic things that would be replicable, easily replicable, replicable by anybody. Great. Well, I'll remind our listeners once again that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about co-housing, alive and well in Maine, Sana McKim and uh, her colleagues and neighbors, Nessa Dirtnig and John Ippolito, are with us by phone. We're going to go, uh, with, with us in the studio, we're going to go by phone to talk with folks from the Island Housing Trust on Mount Desert Island and welcome to the program, um, Aline Sistone. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Aline. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you for having us. Tell us a little bit about your um, experiment. Um, You're relatively new to the position of executive director of the Island Housing Trust. Um, Tell us about its mission and and, uh, kind of introduce us to your kind of signature project at Ripples Hill. Sure. Um, The history and mission of Island Housing Trust is really simple. We are a brainchild of MDI Tomorrow, which was... um, a forum that was formed by a group of individuals that came together to address issues affecting Mount Desert Island, and housing was one of them. And um, my interest really, just to weave it in, is really in social justice issues and housing being one of them. And there was also concern about the diminishing year-round community on MDI. And so weaving that in between my interest in vibrant community and understanding the value of close-knit community, also tying it in with the mission, really, which is... Uh, promoting viable year-round island communities by advancing permanent workforce housing on Mount Desert Island. Um, So basically what we do is we try to provide affordable housing solutions for the workforce on Mount Desert Island. 
and, and valuing the fact that these are people who provide essential services. I think the overall goal really is to diminish the, the trend, a growing trend of losing the year-round population on Mount Desert Island. So when you say workforce, you're talking about um, teachers and nurses and folks who work at the town sewer departments and everybody in between. Absolutely. And our clients range from hospital workers to people working for Acadia National Park to firemen to teachers. Uh, and so basically that, that's correct. Um, and what, what um, your predecessors were working on um, was noting that if those people aren't able to, to afford to live in the community, the community is, is hollowed out in a way that's not healthy for anybody. Absolutely. And, and they figured that the best way to approach the problem is coming up with specific ways to deal with it. And one was to either figure an active way of providing that opportunity and also trying to partner with like-minded people in the community to provide those opportunities. And just to go back to your first question, and the way we did that was to come up with three programs that are currently active. One was Ripple Hill, which you just mentioned a while ago. And the second one is Mrs. Marin, who is an individual in the community that agreed to partner with us. And she's providing such housing. And we just um, enforce the covenants. And I'm sure you probably want to ask about that later. And the third way is providing um, home ownership assistance program where we do provide the gap financing for people who identify homes that they could afford but cannot come up with the full down payment. So we give a portion of that down payment in exchange for affordability covenants to be enforced on that property. So basically that's what we do. Um, and I don't know if, Ron, you wanted me to talk about uh, Ripple's Hill at this point. Well, first of all, um, tell, about, tell us, uh, you, you as an organization worked to figure out this notion of a covenant that would keep things affordable into the future. Um, we probably won't go into the, all the details, but what's the basic principle behind that covenant notion? The basic principle really is that through enforcing the affordability covenant that the property over time will be kept within the affordable range. And, and the idea behind it was because of the demand of real estate on MDI Island that makes it unique from other parts and, and, and other parts of Maine, um, real estate prices were going way too high and salary increments were not keeping up with that, with that, um, with that hike in price for homes. And so the way we decided, and this was done by a very brilliant local lawyer together with um, a group of people who understood the problem and designed a formula. And a cov- the covenants were designed by that team. And the covenants pretty much in simple layman language, really mean that you agree that your home will appreciate at a, at a determined rate and that it will not go beyond a certain rate and that if at all you ever were to sell that property, that you cannot sell it beyond the maximum resale price that is calculated in that formula that I talked about a while back. And so what happens then is a property that, for instance, was valued at, let's give a hypothetical, $250,000, and ideally, if left in the open market uh, to be determined by market forces, would probably be valued at double the price. But if our covenants are on that property, then it would probably be diminished. The, the price would be diminished by up to 85%, meaning that it's still kept within the affordability range for most uh, middle-income families. And I think that's the other distinction I ought to have made at the very beginning that the, our target group really is the middle income, middle income range families and the workforce primarily. Uh, we complement what the main housing authority does. We're not in competition with them, but we target that group because we figured that that was the group that needed the help that we were offering. Great. And, and um, it describe Ripple's um, Hill as a, as a uh, concept. You're using some co-housing project uh, or concepts. And then um, we'd like to talk with Anika, who's a, who's a resident of Ripple's Hill. Absolutely. Ripple's Hill is really synonymous with what Island Housing Trust is. It was our first project. It was made possible through land that was donated by the town of Mount Desert to us. And the, this parcel of land was given to the town by David and Peggy Rockefeller. And the intent was that a portion of it would be reserved for workforce housing. So in 2005, voters of the town of Mount Desert agreed to give the 10-acre parcel, which is located off Beach Hill Road, uh, to Island Housing Trust. And the challenge at that time was to raise the money for the infrastructure. 
And so through the generosity of our donors, we're able to raise the money for the infrastructure. The goal was that Island Housing Trust would absolve the cost of the infrastructure and the land, thereby making it affordable for uh, people to be able to take on construction loans and be able to afford to build a home and put down roots on MDI. And so currently we have phase one that has been completed. Uh, I'm lucky to have Anika work with us who lives on on one of those homes. And phase one has six homes already. And we are currently on phase two, which is underway. We have three homes available. The infrastructure is in. And we, we decided to uh, deal with the projects on an on a case-by-case basis, so to speak. Um, House by house, you mean? House by house. And and what that meant is we are financially sorted as an organization. We were able to help more. So for for every home we've built, there's somebody living in it. And Mm. and we are happy that Ripple Hill is now a home and a community. Their families, their children there. I'm very jealous sometimes when I go up there because a lot of my friends live there and they have little children. My children are friends with their children and they have a really good sense of community. So why don't you pass the phone to Anika and then we'll hear from her about living at Ripples Hill. Thanks. Sure, thank Th- you, Ron. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Hi there. Tell us a little bit about um, how you chose to, to uh, locate at Ripples Hill and what it's like to live there. Yes, um, my husband and I were not members of, but friends with uh, families that were living in a co-housing situation in Arizona. Um, And we clearly saw the benefits, the joys, the struggles of living in that kind of community. And just said, you know, if there's any, we had lived in all different kinds of cities, community, um, cities, rural, um, (laughs) and then everything in between. And when we were able to come back to Mount Desert Island for my husband's job, we looked at each other and said, wow, if there's any way that we can have something like we saw in the co-housing situation we were members um, of in Arizona, we would love it to be able to have our kids run between neighbors and have that kind of community yet have our own space at the same time. Um, we hope that would happen. And so when we moved to Mount Desert Island, we rented in different places and the housing market here is such that it's very difficult to rent. It's um, uncertain on where you're going to live year to year just because of the rental market. Um, and we found Ripple Hill and it met all of, it surpassed all of our needs. We wanted the close community and the green construction and Ripples provides that. Um, and Maine, often housing choices have been rural where you don't see your neighbors um, or city or more developed communities like Portland or Bangor, but here we get the benefits of rural life with the benefits of the close-knit community and um, I think the part that you're also hearing from all of us is that we all live there intentionally. I think that's the difference between us and any other neighborhood is that we all, those of us who want to live in that community, want to have that community, we want to have those um, spontaneous community connections and build that with each other and I think that's um, an invaluable part and that's what we found in Ripple. Great and do you have children? We do. We have two. Um, it's really fun. The community itself right now, we have six houses. There are 14 children in the community, um, nine who are under 10. And so as you can imagine, especially in the summer, it's um, quite <laughs> fun and chaotic as they're running between the houses. Um, and it's been, a, it's been, I think, I mean, I, I am absolutely jealous of the way my kids, I think, get to get to grow up. We get to hike in Acadia, we get to go to the beach, and we get to live within a community that um, is really caring for each other. So I think that's um, an incredible, I hope that they will come to value that as I do. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing. If you'd pass the phone back to Eileen, um, she could give us the contact information for Island Housing Trust. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, our contact information, my email is director at islandhousingtrust.org, and our phone number here is 288 288- Four four nine six, and our website, which I'm I'm sorry to say it's still under revision, but it's still active, is www.islandhousingtrust.org. 
Well, thanks so much for being with us this morning, and good luck with all of your projects. Thank you so much, Ron. Have a nice day. Okay. Eileen Sistone uh, from Island Housing Trust, and one of the residents there, Anika, uh, spoke to us about uh, living in, in Ripples Hill um, in on Mount Desert Island. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Um, we'll open up the phone lines now. If you've got questions about co-housing, alive and well in Maine, give us a call at one 866 625-9378. That's one 625 So the Island Housing Trust, its primary fun- function was affordability. Um, they seem to have adopted a lot of the, the co-housing kinds of things. Um, what do you, how, how do you think about the, the affordability and passing on affordability? Um, how, how does that work in, in the Belfast uh, co-housing and eco-village? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a topic of conversation for six years. It's a tough one for, has been a tough one for us because we didn't have um, Island Housing Trust uh, or any other money. So ev- everything that we've done, we've had to do with whatever money people could put on the table, literally. And um, so that's that's kind of how we started. It's like, well, if we want to do this, we're sitting around the table on Sunday. Who has a thousand bucks? Well, for this idea, you know, I don't know, you know, and, and as we've moved on now, it's like, do you have $25,000? You can become an equity member. You are, you have every hope to actually get a house and this money going toward a house. So, so the, the problem for us is we don't have any fund. We, uh, we did early on talk with Maine State Housing Authority and a number of different people, um, uh, some from HUD, others that were trying to help us figure out, could we do this? How could we do this? And so we had some of them working with our members to say, do you qualify? Can we figure out a way to do this? Um, I think what we were mostly advised to do is focus on getting this thing done in the first place um, and and try and get the money that you have and make sure it actually ends up in houses and not just toward a really expensive discussion group. Um, and so... Uh, that said, we the house type that we chose, it's really the long-term affordability that we would point to, mm-hmm. both the community being able to help us um, with all kinds of daily, monthly, annual um, costs that the average um, independent um, family would have, uh, and also the fact that this, these house types, so that the fact that we have no fossil fuel deliveries to our homes was a, a, an ecologically sustainable sort of decision for us. Um, the idea that you can upgrade to, to be able to, to do that in the long run. So it's, it's really about maintenance and community and that that's really where the cost savings come in. John? And I think that you, you know, we, we, we have focused a lot on the houses because that's what we're building. And we, we can talk about the savings that you have in the long run by not having fossil fuel to heat. Um, but sometimes we also forget um, the sort of human uh, benefits and we can try to quantify those, but we could also talk about them as kind of shifting out of sort of a money economy and more into a human economy. So the average nuclear family these days outsources, you know, uh, the, the kind of um, uh, child uh, um, care that uh, uh, Annika spoke about uh, to, um, you know, professional child care or nannies, or they, you know, they're paying money to therapists and to tutors for their kids and, you know, so many kind of professionalized services. Here we've got a community in Belfast where there's, you know, I look outside the window and I see the house of, okay, there's an emergency room physician, there's a boat builder, there's a gardener, there's a farmer. And all of these people are not just, yes, there are services that I can barter with, but they're also potential, you know, masters that my children can apprentice with. And that kind of human connection to all the potential skills and uh, abilities is very different from outsourcing a nuclear family to this kind of you know professionalized economy. It's really insourcing. It's looking more at what we can build together. Mm. And what that does to raising children in that context is give them just a much more human version of the world, I think. And it talks again about your values of why would you enter into this? Um, it's because you believe in it. <laughs> you're not buying a house. You're buying into a set of values, a set of communities, and this notion that your children benefit um, in immeasurable ways. Yeah, well, I mean, we can try to quantify that, and we've thought about that in explaining, you know, okay, what do you get out of it? And mm-hmm. we'd love to, you know, lower the actual buy-in cost of the house. But I don't know how much we can quantify the ability to, you know, my kid just, you know, um, you know, just uh, has got this terrible, you know, stomachache or something, and I can go next door and, and have my qualms, uh, you know, allayed by someone who can help with that. Right. Right. Uh, so it's 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 building the social connections that are going to be 
a, found, a foundation, not just for our little group of, you know, 36 homes, but also for all the people who pass through the community. We're hoping to not just have our children grow up and have that as a model for them to bring elsewhere and other co-housing communities to develop, but do a lot more outreach. Mm-hmm. Once we get our feet on the ground, I'm really looking forward to working with other communities mm-hmm. like the, the um, Island Housing Trust and Ripples Hill and um, many, you know, political and sustainable and community organizations across the state and the world. Mm. I'll list our phone numbers one more time, one 9378 as we talk about co-housing in Maine and the example, um, Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village. Sana, you mentioned um, kind of looking out and looking for the best practices elsewhere, um, and you hope to avoid some of the challenges that other groups have done but you've encountered some challenges and some successes. Just talk a little bit about what has been challenging over the last six or eight years. I would say the the biggest thing, the the actual buildings and design and all that stuff, we've got a lot of help from engineers and all kinds of people. So that stuff is not what I think is most challenging for any of us, either personally or in small committees. We've got lots of committees functioning and our whole group functions. You know, once a month we have these um, big days of meetings. I think it's that we didn't really, we haven't really grown up learning how to do this. I mean, how do you make a consensus decision with 55 people, most of whom you know from meetings? Um, and, uh, you know, what kind of governance structure? It's really, I think, a f- fascinating process and one that that um, is an intentional decision to say, yeah, I'm going to figure out how to um, to be with my personality style, my work style, my communication style, with other people who have different personality styles, different work styles, different communication styles, and how do we get <clears throat> efficiently and effectively so that we're not meeting 24 hours, seven days a week? How do we get things done that we can all agree to? And so really the governance structure, we're having conversations again now as we're all transitioning into just being neighbors mm. and not, not running a, a whole business together. Um, and also, this is the first time that w- that this group is now relatively stable. So we've had people come and go over the years, and many of the decisions that have been made by the whole group are not necessarily the current group. You know, they're people who, who didn't want to wait six years for a house. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I, I guess I would say the biggest challenge is, is really the community. And, mm-hmm. and yet we're buying community and this is what they say. You're buying the community, and you get the house thrown in for free. <laughs> Nessa, what's been that been like in terms of you and your, your partner kind of entering into the decision-making process? Do you think of any um, either sticking points or things that you found um, intriguing about this process? Well, I think what Sana was saying is really interesting. And earlier, John mentioned the Native peoples and learning mm. from them, and you mentioned kind of older, older-fashioned uh, New England. And I think... One major difference is that our group is much less homogenous than those other groups were. You know, the the Native Americans and 100 years ago in Maine, they had the same religion, they had the same, all of them had the same childhood experience, and we come from all over the world and all over the country, and it it just adds many layers of, of, of depth and of learning, that we just have to learn how do we put aside these differences and really work together and live together and you know we Sana mentioned a lot of meetings which is true but at the same time we have we have had some amazing evenings of playing music together and singing and we've had many potlucks and just spontaneous get togethers even though we don't all live there yet and so I see that as kind of some mortar that holds us all together um that intentionality, those relationships you've built about uh, playing together, meeting together, having dinner together, those relationships then sustain you as you try to make decisions. Exactly. Right. It, it, it helps say, okay, okay, last week I had this great time with this guy, and right now I'm having this big difficulty with him. We're, we're differing, having a difference of opinion, but I really want to make this work. So how can I, how can I get back to the fact that I really like this person and I wanna, I'm going to be the, his neighbor even though right now it's really difficult and having doing consensus is difficult and it's i think that it's making all of us better people and but you have to be you have to recognize that that it is a process and we're not like sana said we're we didn't grow up doing this it's a we can we can learn from different models that have existed and that do exist but you know even i think a lot of the the communes in the 70s and stuff they were they had much more similar beliefs i think we we are quite diverse and we have we have um, certain base agreements that we've all come together around, but that manifests in all of our lives in different ways. Mm. And 
it's it's a wonderful challenge um, <laughs> and easier at times than others. Sure. John, how, how do you relate to the whole decision-making process? And you mentioned your, your connection with Native Americans and, and, and that kind of sense of sitting together and uh, consensus coming out of that sitting together. Well, what, what we learned from our uh, Native friends was that um, their models were very different from the representative democracy that we're used to in the United States and, and other you know, so-called developed countries today. Um, instead, every person's you know voice counted, and you weren't represented by someone who would then represent, be represented by someone else and then go up the chain, and then someone at the top would make a decision. And so we are s- struggling as a as a co-housing community to figure out that out again. And, and um, fortunately, we do have some of those models to learn from. Um, but, uh, you know, I see it all the way down to my family. Uh, we, when we moved in, we say, okay, we're going to be, you know, sustainable. We're going to have a, um, uh, instead of a refrigerator, we're going to have a cold closet that's knee high. We'll put all our stuff in there and we'll just, you know, we, there's no reason we need to keep all this stuff. Well, then we say, okay, let's have a family meeting about that. And we've got, you know, teenage lacrosse players and soccer players. And they're like, what, are you crazy? You're not going to have a refrigerator full of food for us? So um, at the beginning, everything seems to line up, right? You've got, you know, uh, sustainability, affordability, consensus governance, democracy, if all these values that all aligned. And then as you go on, make decisions about what's going to be in the corner of your kitchen, they start to kind of peel off from each other a little <laughs> bit. And I feel that, you know, of all the values that we represent in our community, um, I think the hardest one and the most important one is really figuring out how to get along. And Jolene Blaise says that she's spoken to many people from the Back to Land movement in the 70s, and they said, we figured out everything but how to get along. And that's a really important task. And so when Nessa says all these different people are trying to figure out how to build this huge project together, this isn't, you know, a mural on a street corner or, you know, a single website or something. This is people building homes and living together over, you know, decades and for many of them for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a facilitator, I have to ask, do you use facilitators in your, in your process? Oh, absolutely. And, and I would say even just learning how to facilitate is on our list of things to do because one is how do you facilitate a regular meeting? How do you facilitate conflict? How do you get facilitated? What's your job as a, mm-hmm. someone being facilitated? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I think that's a very regular, normal, constant learning process. Right. And ground rules? Yep. Ground rules. Good, good. <laughs> What else would you want listeners to know? We've not had any phone calls, so we're going to let go of that um, hope. Um, But what else would you want listeners to know, any of you, um, about this experiment, um, um, ongoing experiment uh, in in community and decision-making? Sana? Um, Well, a little self-serving. We've got four houses left. Um, So I just would put that out there, two one-bedrooms and two three-bedrooms. Um, and we would love anybody interested in this idea intellectually and theoretically or actually um, to come and join us. We have open houses the second Sunday of every month from 2 to 4, usually some kind of family-oriented theme. Um, but, yeah, just to get in touch with us and, and help us um, uh, help with this conversation about how to live more sustainably and mm-hmm. getting along better. Mm-hmm. Nessa, what would you want listeners to know about um, this experiment? And, and you're, you're almost ready to move in, so what would you want p- listeners to know about that process? I think it's just important to remember that, it, it, that we're, it's a great group of people that we're, and that we're, we are quite diverse. I think oftentimes when people aren't familiar with this sort of idea, they automatically think of, oh, it must be a commune, or oh, they probably share finances, or where's the Kool-Aid, or whatever, you know. But <laughs> there's, it's, it's, it's just a neighborhood. It's a, it's a bunch of people trying to, trying to, like John said, trying to learn how to get along and, and to care for each other. And, and many of us are, are transplants, although not all of us, and um, that, that it's about, it's about having good, deep connections with people and, and also to live lighter on the earth. Mm. And it sounds like that um, in each family's decision um, to kind of enter in, they're using their life experience, both what has worked well in, in their lives and what has not worked so well. And they're saying, we choose this. There's something different we're choosing. Yeah, yeah it's a very conscious choice. Yeah. John, what would you add? What would you want listeners to kind of take away from our conversation this morning? Well, of course, we hope people will join our community, but we also uh, very deliberately um, made this a model. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like the word experiment because I've tried the experiments and, and they don't survive, right? They're heroic, they last, they burn out. And this is really, as Anna said, an attempt to you know do things by the book and, and or not by the book. It's it's out, coloring outside of the lines, but somehow you have to also make it you know legal and fiscally responsible and so forth. So right. that other people go, oh yeah, I could do that. Right. 
we're also hoping that people will ratchet up and make it better or make it more diverse, um, that there's lots of different options for how to live together in eco-villages and co-housing and the like. And one thing that I would say is it has you know, been a, a challenge for our community that I hope other communities will, will take on uh, you know, with full seriousness is how do, you, how do you build a village around the kids? You know, how do you put children at the center of that? Because um, it is really hard. It's it's hard when you know kids go to say public schools where you know everyone's got the same exact age. You're not used to dealing with multi generational issues. Every you know all the testosterone comes out at the same time. All the same songs are popular at the same time, right? And now you know my kids are going to grow up in a community where you know there's a there's a 75 year old guy on one side and you know 30 year old people on the other side. There's a five month old next door. Um, they're going to learn a very different model. And I think if we can figure out how to uh, put their needs first, especially in the long run, we'll be doing great. Great. And I thank you for um, using that word model. Sounds like that's what you're doing. Sana, contact information? Yep, www.maincohousing.org and 338-9200. Great. So in another six years, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the model at that point in time. Great. Sounds great. Great. Thanks or maybe, for having maybe sooner. Yeah, maybe sooner. next year. To it. Good. <laughs> well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Koronak on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests in the studio, Sana McKim, Belfast uh, Co-Housing and Eco-Village, and her uh, neighbors and colleagues, Nessa Dertnik and Joe Ippolito. Good. I'm doing it well. And then we had um, also Eileen, Eileen Sistone and uh, Anika from Island Housing Trust and the Ripples Hill uh, Project on Mount Desert Island. Thanks to our underwriters, uh, especially Maine Community Foundation. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Good morning.